from my perspective now and my experience looking at this, it is absolutely ridiculous to take marginalized people, many with like huge trauma histories, and tell them that if you're going to use these drugs, the only way you can get them is from dealers. The only way you can afford them is to do crime. And the consequences of that is being in and out of jail all the time. I mean, it, it's a crazy, radical concept. And I think what I'm suggesting is like way less radical than crime and punishment. Like that's the most radical thing we could do. Giving people medic safer medications that they could use, I, I think is not radical at all. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Public officials have been yelling from the rooftops that there's an opioid epidemic. Yes, an obscene number of people are dying from overdoses, many of which involve opioids. But they're not quite right. Researchers who really get what's going on describe what's happening to the U.S. drug supply over the last few years as a mass poisoning. Were it not for potent fentanyl analogs being sold in heroin markets, many, many lives would be spared. Hey, so I'm Zachary Siegel, and you're listening to Narcotica. Today, we're discussing the concept of a safe supply with Dr. Mark Tyndall, a professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia and the founder of My Safe Project, which is a vending machine that dispenses hydromorphone pills, otherwise known as Dilaudid. That's its brand name. Mark says that this program is saving lives, and we're going to talk about it. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on. And also with me is my co-host, Troy Farah, beaming in from California's high desert. Troy, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Troy, do you want to kick off the conversation? I know you've been looking into the safe supply concept all week. So, Mark, you wrote in 2018 in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, quote, the overdose crisis has exposed the large gaps in our drug treatment systems and the uneven access to harm reduction services. Has much changed in two years? What's the, like, the overdose deaths like there or, or the, the drug scene, I suppose? Well, I've been working in what would be considered the infamous downtown east side of Vancouver for over 20 years, mainly at first, at least as an infectious disease doctor, and I was treating people with for their HIV and hepatitis C, and then got quite involved in the, uh, in the harm reduction movement and was part of the evaluation of Insight, the first North American supervised injection site, and that opened in 2003. So I've been kind of working in that community for a long time, and about 2016, um, we noticed that more and more people were overdosing. And, you know, looking back four years, nobody would have thought that this many people would have died in British Columbia. But almost 5,000 people have died in the province of British Columbia since 2015. So a massive number. We used to report about 150 to 300 overdose deaths a year, and then it spiked to 1,500 in 2016. So a massive increase in number of people dying of overdose. And it was very clear that it was because fentanyl had replaced what had been a very steady and consistent heroin market in the city for 
decades probably and heroin disappeared and fentanyl came in and the quality of the fentanyl and how it was mixed was very uneven and chaotic and people were just buying stuff that was way too potent and were dying. Can you expand a little bit on the potency difference? Like there's a bunch of different fentanyl analogs and they all kind of vary in terms of their potency and many of them are much more potent than heroin. Can you, you know, break down, if not exactly like by the numbers, at least like ballpark, how much more potent the supply became? And, and how that sort of factors into this huge spike in deaths post, you know, 2016. Yeah, well, one of the kind of misconceptions is somehow fentanyl on its own, just the word fentanyl or some of the analogs, carfentanil means instant overdose. And that's not true. People have been basically only using fentanyl in this community now for four years. And most times people use it, it's, it's fine, but it's just a very, you know, concentrated, powder. And if you're mixing it up in your kitchen blender, it's pretty hard to distribute it evenly. So the molecule per molecule, clearly, you know, people say it's a hundred to a thousand times more potent than heroin per gram, but it's all to do with how people mix it up and how they cut the drug and things. So most fentanyl that's bought on the street today in Vancouver is fine. People get what they need from it and they use it again. I mean, the half-life is a little bit shorter, so people tend to have to inject more often when they're using fentanyl. But what they receive from the drug is often fine for them. And some people would prefer fentanyl over heroin, but it's just playing, you know, the Russian roulette when you buy from a street dealer who has really very little control over how the drug was mixed up. So can you explain to us a little bit about this My Safe Supply program? What are your goals with it? And why is it important for this program to be low barrier? Well, I mean, I've come, you know, a bit of a trajectory. Four years ago, when we were dealing with the overdose crisis, when it, you know, first had meetings about it, at that time, I was the head of the British Columbia Center for Disease Control. So it was a big public health institute in the province. So we, you know, we quickly tried to mobilize what we knew would work or what would help with the expansion of harm reduction. So we went from one supervised injection site in the province to about 30 within about six months, because this wasn't a problem that was just inner city, but the whole province was uh, experiencing these high rates of overdose deaths. So we quickly expanded that, that we had quite a push for naloxone. We pumped out just tons of naloxone kits, trained many people in the community, basically an army of people walking around with naloxone. But it became clear very quickly that as long as people were buying this poison on the street, all we were doing was reversing overdoses once they occurred. And and that's a pretty you know, a real uphill battle and it's never ending. So, you know, spending time at supervised injection sites and in an eight hour shift, you'd you'd see like six or eight people go down and need naloxone. I mean, it became pretty crazy that we were expecting people to buy this stuff and reacting the way we are. But we also knew that 80% of the deaths happened when people were using alone. So people were just found a day or two later in their locked room and uh, just tragic. So the idea of giving people uh, 
you know, a pharmaceutical grade safer drug. I've been pushing that for a few years now, and it's really become part of the conversation now. So I think we've moved the dial quite a bit as far as politically and community leaders saying that this is what we really need, a safe supply. We can't go on expecting people to buy this stuff and just reversing it. It's, it's just, it's crazy. So the safe supply idea, the reason to use hydromorphone, some of that comes from evidence we have from this Crosstown Clinic, which has been giving out injectable heroin and hydromorphone for almost a decade to quite a limited number of people. But we knew that people uh, liked hydromorphone for the most part, would use this as a substitute for fentanyl or heroin. And the pills that I could get were very cheap from a pharmacy, and they're very easy to grind up and cook and inject if that's how people wanted to use the drug. So the the hydromorphone idea came out just from expediency. People had a lot of experience injecting these pills. Some people could take them orally, but um, we suspected the most people would be cooking them and injecting them. And just to you know really address head-on the problem with a poison drug supply. Can you explain a little bit more about how the vending machine itself works? Yeah, so the, the history of this is I wrote a grant to Health Canada because they had a special fund for novel responses to the overdose crisis. And in my grant, I said we should use dilated pills. We could give them out in support of housing where there was already med programs involved so people could go to a front desk and get a regular strip for their hydromorphone pills. I suggested they also be set up in supervised injection sites. So instead of, you know, people coming in with their poison that they could actually get the drugs they they would use right on site. And then I said, we need a kind of um, a storefront type thing, like something that's not directly associated with housing or supervised injection sites. So that was my proposal that actually got funded. And shortly after that, I was kind of brainstorming about how we'd actually operationalize this. And I gave a talk about almost two and a half years ago, probably. And I mentioned that, you know, we have to think about all ways to get people the drugs and we could even use vending machines. And so that was something I just threw in at the end, not really thinking seriously that I'd put drugs in vending machines. And so the next day in the paper, the headline was in the local paper, you know, public health doctor wants to give out dangerous drugs in vending machines. And so I did a whole bunch of interviews after that. And they were all the kind of crazy interviews like, doctor, are you serious? Like, how would you stop children from getting these? And doctor, how would you, would you put them in shopping malls? And, you know, how would you prevent people from smashing them in and steal? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is really not about a vending machine. This is about how we get people easy access to uh, drugs that won't kill them. However, after probably 20 interviews that went similarly, and I couldn't really get it back on track, um, I decided that putting them in machines would be like brilliant. Like, why don't we do that? And then the next day, this is all a crazy true story, but some guy called me from uh, the other side of the country, Nova Scotia, and said he read about this idea and he has machines that he was trying to get for medical use. And would I be interested? And I said, well, actually, I didn't know they really existed. Um, but yeah, I'm really interested. So we met and then... Um, for the last two years, we've been modifying the the machine he had to, to adapt to the project that I was interested in. And uh, about October of this past year, we had the machine. 
So it's, it's much like an ATM. It's not like a Coke machine. So it's just a big 800-pound box that we can put drugs in. It's run by biometrics. So when we enroll people, it reads the palm of your hand, um, and the machine can recognize who you are. And the machine is totally programmable. So with the you know, consultation with the participant, we can decide what's a reasonable schedule for them to pick them up. And I can time the machine however I want. I have real-time recording of what comes out of that machine. So I have a dashboard that I can access on an app anytime I want and find out, you know, if people are getting them and if there's any issues. Yeah, so it's a really secure way to keep their drugs. How many people are currently using the, the machine right now? You know, I, I still don't really have, you know, a lot of buy-in for this as far as uh, any resources or people getting behind this. So I realized that I had to demonstrate the technology. So I handpicked five people. You know, I knew them all before, and they were, you know, really compelling cases of people that I had, you know, some I had treated for HIV, some hepatitis C, some for infectious diseases that I followed for many years. And they had histories of, you know, doctor, last week I overdosed. I had, somebody had to give me naloxone, and I felt ethically that I have to offer you something. I, I don't want to get a phone call that you're not coming back because you were found in your room dead. So I handpicked five people to test out the technology. You know, that was my goal, just to make sure people could use it and liked using it and worked out kind of protocols and things with them. But just for nothing else but compassion, we're up to 15 people now. You know, people are coming in all the time. How can I get on this program? I'm really scared. And so I, we're up to 15 people, but I'm at a real turning point that I, I need to get some resources and people on side because basically it's just me and a few volunteers that are, you know, writing scripts, loading the machine and, and visiting with people. So the next step now would be to try and expand this. Yeah. So let's, let's definitely talk about that. So we're, we're in, in America where it's incredibly hard for people to even get a steady access of buprenorphine and methadone, which are opioids that are far harder to, to overdose on. And, and there's so many barriers and regulations around these kinds of opioids because they're specifically prescribed for treating addiction. And, you know, outside of like the interviews you gave and, and just like introducing the concept and sort of open the proverbial Overton window, like what kind of activity politically and, and rhetorically what, what was going on to uh, even get this far? Like walk us through how like this was communicated and and you're talking about getting more buy-in now so where where do things stand are, are you still like far outside of sort of consensus on this you know th there has been quite a lot of movement so it went from this guy's like out of his mind to this might just might work so there is now programs um, using dilated pills so one of the humps was the whole concept of a safe supply why would you give drug users drugs which in my mind is kind of of course you would that's what they're using and that's why <laughs> but um i think to the kind of general audience that would be a bit counterintuitive but if you're able to really show the fact that no these people are actually overdosing in massive numbers. They're buying poison drugs. And it's just, 
not ethical that we just expect people to, uh, well, one, just stop using because it's still at the end of the day, despite our harm reduction, we're basically telling people just stop, just say no, like don't, don't buy these things when they have absolutely no alternative. And we know that people will go to great extents to get these drugs. Even with the constant threat of overdose and death, People are buying these drugs all the time. It hasn't really changed the intensity of drug use, at least in you know in the community I'm working in. So it's it's just kind of common sense. And even people who are really keen on treatment and recovery, I mean, making the case that you can't treat dead people, I mean, they have to start somewhere. And trying to position this as addiction treatment, why should this be treated any different than buprenorphine or methadone? I mean. People still are so hung up with the idea that if people are trying to control or reduce their drug use, they shouldn't have any pleasure. You know, why would you give them hydromorphone when you can give them methadone? And the only difference to me is pleasure and control. So the, the drugs work just as well for, you know, hydromorphone works very well for dealing with cravings and withdrawal, just like methadone does. But the idea, kind of the punitive idea, well, methadone's okay or bup's okay because people don't get any, you know, they don't feel good when they're on it. So I'm just kind of putting it back, well, if it just is effective or probably much more effective as far as retention goes, why wouldn't we consider this part of addiction treatment? It's people's medications. This is what they use. And if we can help them regulate it and at least have access to a safer supply, then this should be no different than methadone or buprenorphine. Because I think people need to understand that, that at least in the Canadian context, methadone and buprenorphine are really abstinence-based treatments. They're saying, don't use these drugs, use our drugs. Here are the rules. You come and get them and we'll watch you use them. We don't expect you to get any feeling from these drugs, but it will help you with your cravings and withdrawal symptoms. So I'm not against, you know, I'm certainly, I've prescribed my, my fair share of methadone in my life, but the idea that that giving people actual hydromorphone or even heroin is that much different other than feelings people get, I, I, I think we need to just, you know, think twice and just, if that's what people would prefer over methadone, then that's what we should give them. Yeah, it, it makes me think about, like, a lot of the politics of of treatments and things like that. And, and when, when you're talking to someone who, who doesn't know the, the sort of foundational concepts of treating opioid addiction with opioids, how, how do you bring them into that conversation? I've heard of, like, people comparing it to diabetes and that people need insulin and and if someone's like internal opioid system is all out of whack just give them the opioid that they need to make them feel better what's your way to to make this clear and comprehensible and get people to land on your side well sort of what i've just been saying i suppose i mean if if i get people down there to see somebody who's using regularly and can see that in a very short period of time people can start regulating their lives so there's a the direct idea of safe supply if you're going to buy drugs from the street that are going to kill you then it makes some kind of sense that we'd offer people an alternative to that that won't kill them but 
clearly the bigger picture is getting people out of the rut of poverty and criminality. Because, you know, to get your drugs, most people don't have a steady income to get those drugs. And every day's a, an adventure, how they're going to do that. To just say, okay, look, getting up in the morning and having to find 20 bucks any way you can is a lot of stress and causes a lot of harm to you and potentially to people around you. So just come in, get them, think about what you want to do for the rest of the day. And that's life-changing for people. If I've asked the 15 people so far, what would be your goals for this program? Everyone says to reduce or stop drug use. Like, doctor, if I could just get these and then I could start thinking about how I would, you know, get back to school or maybe I could get a part-time job or so people are just desperate to get out of the, out of the rut that we put them in by our, you know, the structural violence that we've, uh, we put people into. And it's, it's, you know, when I, from my perspective now and my experience looking at this, it is absolutely ridiculous to take marginalized people many with like huge trauma histories and tell them that if you're going to use these drugs, the only way you can get them is from dealers. The only way you can afford them is to do crime. And the consequences of that is being in and out of jail all the time. I mean, it's a crazy radical concept. And I think what I'm suggesting is like way less radical than crime and punishment. Like that's the most radical thing we could do. Giving people safer medications that they could use, I I think is not radical at all. Yeah, I agree. We we talk about that a lot in this program that like being able to use drugs just to to experience pleasure, there's nothing wrong with that. We should work on removing the risks that are associated with it. And that's an idea that makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. Like if you were able to make a version of heroin that wasn't addictive and didn't have a risk of overdose, but still gave you those amazing feelings, people still wouldn't be on board with that. And it's it's very strange, I think. You say that, you know, dead people don't recover, but I think we would both agree that people also don't need to recover. And that's a real problem that we've been encountering lately in the harm reduction community. This isn't a criticism of you, Mark, but a lot of people want to extend services like syringe access or take home naloxone or even supervised consumption with the end goal being to get them into treatment. But some people may never want to get into treatment, and that's okay. I think it's great that a program like My Safe Project is offering this stability. When you're not spending 24 hours a day thinking about your next fix, you can start working on other things in your life or just enjoy life. No, I'm totally, yeah, no, that, I think that's a, that's my message too. This is your life. This is your decisions. I'm giving you, you know, some chance for you to, to heal or to think what you want to do next. And that may not include getting into a recovery program. And I think a lot of the safe supply initiatives that, you know, are kind of being talked about are heavily linked to, you know, we'll give you this for a short period of time, but every day we're going to ask you, can you please switch to buprenorphine or methadone? Can you please go into a recovery? And people, you know, they're not ready for that. And obviously the people that are in the program, you know, I've started, they're people with long histories of, of drug use. And it hasn't been for lack of any opportunity. Our treatment system is very poor, but you know, there's a lot of opportunities if people had decided that they wanted to stop 
but what they're offered to to do that is just not acceptable to them and the rules are just not acceptable and many people will continue to use drugs for the foreseeable future my experience is that Eventually, a lot of people sort of graduate out of it on their own terms. But it, it's, uh, yeah, this linkage, you know, will be nice to you. You know, we'll, here's our rules for our program. But really, the success of our program will be based on the number of people who stop using drugs is, uh, is just uh, impractical or uh, shouldn't be the only end goal here. Yeah, I agree. Can we talk about what a safe supply for stimulants might look like? Because... In the United States, at least, we're seeing an increase of people using stimulants. A lot of people, it seems like, are moving away from opioids. Or, you know, people use both. There's this idea that you only use one type of drug, and that's pretty false. A lot of people switch depending on how they're feeling. And and also benzos are increasing in popularity. Do we need a safe supply for stimulants? Do we need a safe supply for benzos? And if so, what does that look like? Yeah, well, this is a, you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking to community groups and things because this is really kind of a grassroots thing. And there are, we do a baseline urine test for people, not to be punitive, but, you know, just to show that to show them what they have in their urine. Some people are quite surprised because it's an adventure out there what people are actually buying and using. But I think out of the 15 people, 14 had some stimulants in their urine, either cocaine or crystal meth. So it's a very common thing for sure, the poly drug use in this. Obviously, there's not as as easy of a substitute for safe supply for some of these things. There's, you know, there, there's some uh, small studies going on to try to find pharmaceutically appropriate substitutes for actual crystal meth and cocaine. But the best thing for stimulant users is a safe supply of cocaine and crystal meth, probably. So I think a regulated supply should be thought about. The drive for the the opioid issue is the obviously direct death. So that that you know it's gone up because of people overdosing on opioids and having their respiratory system uh, suppressed and, and not breathing. So that's a, a direct response that we needed to offer people some opioids. But I, I think a regulated drug supply would be something we'd consider. And so for some people, even having a regulated supply, so the, a lot of problems with stimulant use is kind of the impulsiveness and the drive to use it all at once. So, you know, the I had have had a lot of experience in hospital trying to keep people in there for treatment. And the person who is a heavy stimulant user, crack cocaine or crystal meth, can spend six weeks in hospital on IV antibiotics and with not a ton of support, cannot use those drugs for, for that period of time. They they have some cravings and they probably use as soon as they leave, which is hugely different from somebody who's uh, wired to opioids and they they don't last very long without getting getting some replacement. So, anyways, there's there's very there's difference in these drugs. Though, the one reason, and certainly communities in uh, in Canada who have basically a stimulant issue with people using drugs, is stimulants, especially crystal meth, is really a poor man's drug. They, they, these are very cheap. People who just want to get high and just want to, you know, get get some relief from their problems would rather use opioids, but they're just not available in their communities anymore. And uh, crystal meth is just so cheap that whole communities basically are just now using crystal meth. But it's basically because the fentanyl has not gotten there to their communities and that the prescription, the diverted prescription drugs have totally dried up. So 
crystal meth is what they have left to use. It's part preference, I'm sure, with some stimulant users, but it's part just what's available for people to use. And crystal meth, for the most part, is the lowest common denominator for people because it is cheap and lasts a long time. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a lot of different geographic trends and distribution of who's using drugs, and and a lot of that depends on simply like where they live in in America as well. And hearing you talk about a sort of full-on regulated supply and what that would look like and, and why it's just, from your perspective, like an ethical thing to do if it, if it saves lives. And in, in a recent piece in Wired about your opioid vending machine, um, Darwin Fisher describes you as a doctor who has contempt for the medical profession, which they describe as a as a valuable thing. And and I'm just hearing your take on all this. I guess I want to hear from you. Where do you see yourself depart from your colleagues in, in medicine? And, and what is it about this issue that you see that maybe they don't see? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I do have a lot of colleagues and I do have, you know, uh, not totally, uh, <laughs> totally sitting on my own. I think there's a lot of fear in the regulation. So it, it, there's not a lot of doctors that I work with who are at this point in time willing to write prescriptions because they're concerned about repercussions and how it will look, especially within the medical profession when so much attention's been on uh, pharmaceutical prescribing. And doctors are like very scared that they don't want to be seen as anybody giving out these drugs. But in public health, I mean, all the the safest place to land from a from a political standpoint is stopping people from getting into this in the first place. So the prevention thing is kind of public health, and basically saying once you're into this, we can't do much for you. We'll give you a little bit of, of line here, but for the most part, we'd like to put all of our resources into kids and stopping this from happening in the first place. It's much more comfortable to do that, and so. Any idea that you'd prescribe to somebody and it would fall into the wrong hands, the whole diversion thing, is uh, just scares people to death. I mean, all, the biggest pushback I have is diversion. So if these drugs, which are very cheap from a pharmacy, have high street value, what's to stop people from selling their drugs? And the worst case scenario is what's to stop them from running to a schoolyard and giving to somebody in grade seven? But is totally impractical. Could that ever happen? Uh, yeah, it could possibly happen. But in the whole scheme of things, it's so unlikely. And the damage we're doing by watching people buy contaminated drugs is just so overwhelmingly. Like 5,000 people in, you know, in just one province in, in three and a half years. I mean, it's massive. So we have to, doctors are pretty concerned that, you know, if one thing went wrong, people from the Ministry of Health came to visit the machine when I just had five people on and they said, well, what they really need is some heads up so they can come up with speaking points if something went wrong. And this is when I had five users on this machine. And I looked at it and said, when something goes wrong, 5,000 people have died. That that went terribly wrong. That, that is your speaking points. What are you doing to address that? But we're so concerned with like, you know, having zero tolerance for risk that physicians are a bit scared about this. And uh, 
back to the diversion thing, I, I can't guarantee that none of these pills have ever gone to somebody that wasn't a participant, but there's very little motivation. If you're worried about buying powdered fentanyl and I'm giving you some substitute, why would you go trade them for fentanyl? makes no sense. And that's what people tell me. And then if anything, if you get, you know, four pills from this machine and your buddy or your partner is drug sick and you give them one of your dilated pills, I mean, I think that's just being a nice person and they'd be buying stuff on the street. So it's the whole idea that maybe we should get to the point where we want secondary distribution of these things. If we really thought this was a poisoning epidemic and people were buying fentanyl, we'd give people extras. Like, do you know anybody else who's at risk? Can you please give them these safer drugs and stop them from doing fentanyl? Like that's how we treat any other poisoning epidemic. That's how we treat needle exchanges. And we used to have one for one. And now we say, hey, take the whole box because I know there's people out there who don't have access to clean needles. Please give them to them because it's way safer. So I, I'm not that worried about diversion in, in the face of a poisoning epidemic because people need access all kinds of ways to a safer, uh, safer source. Yeah, just hearing you spell that out, it's a total 180 from the current discourse in America right now, where basically the narrative goes something like pills were diverted from the pharmaceutical supply and way too many people who weren't prescribed to opioids started taking them and then they got addicted and then they started using heroin, which eventually became tainted with fentanyl and now they're dying. And so like the whole start of the crisis here in America is because, in in this argument, because of diversion in the first place, and now it's like we actually want to go back to prescription diversion because it's infinitely better than this Russian roulette game you were talking about with all these uneven batches of fentanyl. So it's really just like, I guess for like our listeners here in America, just put this out there, like it's you're really like taking a courageous step, I think, to provide people with, with the drugs that they need. And that in America, if a doctor was doing what you were doing, they would no doubt be criminally prosecuted and lose their license and possibly jailed. The The, the stakes are, are so high. And just to set that context is important to, to how different you're approaching this as a doctor. And, and I know there's people in America who wish that doctors were doing what you were doing. Yeah, well, hopefully I'm not on the, anybody's criminal radar now. I mean, the way I've developed, <laughs> I did this with the with regulations because I, you know, I have been in a lot of contact with the College of Physicians, College of Pharmacists, but basically the narrative of this machine is I'm writing a total legal script it's going to a total legal pharmacist. They're doing total legal dispensing of this. And all I'm doing is putting people's prescriptions in a safe regulated box. So yeah, a safe box. I don't have a whole load of drugs and I'm just giving them to the people. These are their drugs and they have consented or chosen to get them in a way that's heavily regulated. So you know, I haven't really stepped on any regulatory issues here. It's a, obviously the drugs for some people could be a bit off label. Um, but, you know, if I'm preventing death, 
I think that's a quite a good indication to use this. <laughs> so, uh, you know, um, and I could make a good case that everybody has really bad pain. So <laughs> if that's what the, <laughs> yeah, this person yeah. has really severe pain and they need these drugs. And if they don't get the drugs, their pain gets way worse. And why wouldn't we do a safe box for people? So I can understand that people may be reluctant to give, you know, reading American pain and these kind of crazy pill mills and stuff, you know, clearly this is nothing like that, right? This is very tightly regulated. We're dealing with people. We're not pushing tons of pills out there in the community. But I would push back on the narrative that's been, you know, is totally been accepted that there was very little intention for people to get hold of these drugs. They were all victims of poor prescribing and everybody's got a story. I went to the dentist, got my teeth pulled. Now I'm uh, using fentanyl and heroin. That is not the real narrative for most people. People are seeking drugs and they sought out these and the easiest way to get them at one point was diverted pharmaceutical drugs. But these are, you know, for the most part, people who do have trauma and pain issues and they are seeking these drugs out and are not simply just you know bystanders and and victims of bad prescribing habits yeah yeah no i i mean i definitely agree and the the story here though in 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 the u.s is very much that these are all innocent victims and that johnny the football player broke his ankle and six months after using percocet was found dead from a fentanyl overdose and like that does happen sure but like there's a much more nuanced and complicated story about this person's life that we just don't really hear and 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 it's very much reductively told as like the problem started with the prescription and a lot of people in Canada talk about you know the the kind of generational trauma and 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 pain that that's uh sort of endemic to the downtown east side is is really the a, a much different context and a much more painful one that breeds the conditions of addiction. Look at the map of America. Look where all these problems are happening. It's all totally related to socioeconomic issues, basically. So it's not, it's not throughout the whole United States. There's, there's bad pockets of this, and it's not, it's not driven just by bad prescribing practices. It's driven by the drive to uh, uh, you know, obtain these drugs from people who are suffering. Mark, I want to go back to something that you said about how you can use chronic pain is kind of an excuse if people ask me questions about prescriptions. But I mean, I, I feel like I've encountered that a lot of people do use narcotics to medicate chronic pain. I think chronic pain is the number one condition in North America. If not, it's like one of the top conditions that people have. So and even drinking alcohol can help some people manage their pain. Um, cannabis is another one. So it's not really necessarily a euphemism, but people also use drugs for pleasure. It's just this whole complex thing. But my point is, is like, I really think that drug use is, to a degree, like nobody's business. Like, why are you using it? You know, people should be able to have the freedom to put what they want in their body. Yeah, I I would agree. I mean, but we made it such a hazardous activity, right? So, I mean, you know, I mean, it's so obvious. Alcohol is considered like that's what people should be doing. If you want to um, you know, lose yourself for a while. Why don't you just drink a lot of alcohol? And that's totally acceptable and, and actually heavily promoted in North America. 
but you use something that's been deemed arbitrarily illegal that all of a sudden everything changes and we put people in such horrible situations that it's really difficult to to live like that like you can't the drugs are very hard to obtain they're extremely expensive and you run the risk of getting involved in the criminal justice system every day so it's you know on the philosophy that it's it's your business what you put in your body i i would agree with but i mean we've with with illegal drugs we've created a situation that it's just not people are not able to do that very easily unless you're super rich or keith richards or i don't know so i mean there's there's people who do that but well even prince overdose yeah you know. exactly. um but yeah. yeah yeah that is why the safe supply is so important with the my safe project with the vending machine um what well, about no, the... we call it a dispensing machine so we're trying to change and i mean vending <laughs> kind of what people have this idea that it's uh you know it looks like a coke machine but it's more like an atm Okay, that makes sense. What about, you know, the lack of therapy? Is there a way for people to, you know, get more involved if they want to? Because, you know, so a lot of drug use stems from trauma or other mental health issues that, you know, that if they're not addressed, can can continue to create problems. Is there like a way for people to, once they've kind of been stabilized and they're not at risk of dying as much, they can do something differently? Yeah, I mean, this concept that, well, it's a machine. Don't people need connection? Isn't that what addiction's all about? Well, I mean, it's a small sample size, but I spend most of my day standing by the machine. I know everybody by first name. I know if they're having a bad day or a good day. I mean, so as far as them feeling they're connected with me and, and some of the other staff there, there's, it's like super connected. And if they feel like I need help doing this, it's certainly in the downtown community, there is a million services. You know, I'm happy to refer them anywhere. And I will, you know, I, I will. I'm trying not to position this, though, as a comprehensive addiction program. My goal yeah. is to offer people uh, alternative to this drug supply and i'm not i don't want to pressure them and think and because i kind of know how this works there's people who have attended insight for since it opened in 2003 and they their pattern of drug use hasn't changed all that much they have a, they see people multiple times a day if they want to and they will decide when they want to move on and for some people it hasn't happened in 15 years so I think that people will seek out help and when they're ready to seek out help and trying to stabilize them will give them that opportunity. But I, I don't want to put any pressure on them every day when they come in saying, you know, how are you doing? You must be doing way better. Why don't you, why don't you get off this? And, and, you know, you, you'd really be better off stopping or on methadone. <laughs> like those yeah. kind of conversations I just don't, you know, I would never have, but, people know what's out there and they will seek that when they, when they need to there, but already in a very short period of time, there's two people now that are working that weren't before. And just because they can organize their day and don't have to be going to collect bottles and go into dumpsters. So I think there's a, yeah, there's obviously I want to help people get on with healing or whatever they want to do. I'm not trying to fix you. So I'm not, you know, my whole attitude to try to support people, get them in a place where they can move on to the next step if that's what they want to do, what their trajectory is. And because the other thing I push back on this recovery, it's as if 
all the all these people in the program were doing like fabulously well discovered heroin hit the skids and now i want to get them back up to get them out of that and back where they were and most people were never really on the on a particularly uh, healthy track to begin with. So they, this right. is part of their life. This is, a, I'm not sure what they're supposed to recover from. You know, they have to move on. And I think, you know, living in a tent on the street under police surveillance is a bad situation for most people, <laughs> probably everybody. So we need to get them in a position where they can kind of get out of that cycle. And it's up to them where they want to move on from there. Yeah, again, I think it just I, I can't help but contrast this with America's system, which is, you know, the one that we report about and talk about all the time here and and really just like how many strings are attached to receiving treatment and that I just saw on Twitter today that someone got a new Suboxone doctor and that part of the sort of first day was getting a, a new contract and the contract stated that if you miss an appointment you're kicked out if you relapse you're kicked out you don't make your bed that morning like you're kicked out just like just piling on like ridiculous strings and, and barriers that just make life difficult for people when it we all know here that a hard stressful tedious life is like the the stuff that you know drives everyone insane and, and makes anything resembling a, a stable everyday life possible. And, and that, that, that's why like the Switzerland heroin trials seem to work for people, or at least that's what the research showed, is that it, it stopped the hustle. People got what they needed and they could go live their lives. And if you're trying to get $10 every four hours, like that's, that's brutal. And this, this takes that away. Yeah. I mean, we don't treat, we, you know, in some ways, it's really an extension on the war on drugs. We built a whole infrastructure to just really promote that drugs are terrible and we have to get you off them, basically. And that just doesn't work. So it's basically the same philosophy of the war on drugs. Now we put in in therapeutic terms. <laughs> the most wonderful experience I've had with you know, like introducing people to the machine and they t get the pills out and they go, I mean, I can go. And I say, yeah, <laughs> go like I, I don't want to watch you use them. I don't know how you use them. It's not, you know, you're the expert. And if you use these drugs, they won't kill you. And these are people that have a long history of opioid use and giving them, you know, three, three or four dilated pills. I mean, it's, it's kind of like Coors Light. They hopefully get some satisfaction out of it, but it's, it's not going to wipe them out, you know? So I'm, I feel totally comfortable and they can go use in their own home if that's what they normally do with it. Yeah. And no, no strings attached. I don't want to have a whole bunch of rules and, and treat most of our, many of our addiction. And as you just described, having this contract is basically saying, I don't trust you. We're not really in this together. These, these are the rules that I've created that are most beneficial for me as your physician because it protects me from all kinds of stuff. If you don't fill these rules, then I don't care. And doctors have, you know, great practices and they can say, I have a hundred methadone patients who are doing brilliantly, but they're not really actually looking out the window of all the people who aren't doing brilliantly and their rules are pretty stringent. And if you want to come into my tent and you want me to do this for you, uh, these are my rules. And man, it's just not, doesn't work for people like that. And we should be much more in a partnership. You know, you have a need, we have some issues, we have to, we have to work on these issues together, but it's, it's not, you know, 
I'm going to fix you. And this is the contract that's going to fix you. It's worked for other people. It should work for you. If it doesn't work for you, then you've broken my contract. I guess you'll just go buy fentanyl and overdose. And that's to me kind of unethical. Wow. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Thank you. There are so many misconceptions about safe supply. I really appreciate you taking the time to dispel them today for us. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. No, I really obviously enjoy talking about it. And um, I think I'm on the right side of history, but whether history ever gets here, I'm not sure. It's the end of history. History's over. (laughs) Okay. Well, thanks a lot, you guys. Hey, thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. We're also on other social medias like Facebook and YouTube. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Morath, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. As always, our theme music was composed by Glassbolt, and I'm your co-producer, Garrett. Narcotica is an ad-free program, and we like to keep it that way, so thank you so, so much to our patrons on Patreon. We really could not do this without them. Your guys' contributions help keep this show free from corporate influence. If you like the program, you can join dozens of other pro-drug advocates on our Patreon. Supporters get early access to episodes, and we're working on some other perks as well. Thanks for making this program possible, everyone. If Patreon isn't for you, you can still help us out by getting the word out. Give us a rating where you get your podcasts, or on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes. Just look for us and you'll find us. If you want to send us a suggestion, tell us about your conversation with God, or you just want to say hi, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com. That's all, folks. Have a nice night.